This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak. We profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. If you found the show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. If you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk and me, Adam Stack. Today's guest is Hank Rogers, founder of the Tetris Company, Blue Planet Software, and Blue Planet Foundation. Enjoy the show. I'm here with Hank Rogers, serial entrepreneur, game designer turned entrepreneur. He is the founder of Blue Planet Software, as well as the Tetris Company, which is most known for bringing the worldwide phenomenon known as Tetris to the world. It's by far one of the most universally played video games of all time. Uh, so I'm proud to int- uh, introduce you guys to Hank Rogers. Please say hello. Hello. So Hank, you've had quite the uh, quite the journey uh, on this road, not just so much from Tetris, but all the companies you've founded and um, your your road into philanthropy and what you're doing now. But can you give us for the list, for the listeners who maybe just know Tetris' story, but don't, don't so much know Hank's story? Can you give us an idea of of your journey and where it started and and uh, what you've done over the last twenty years? Okay, um, I'm originally from Holland. Eleven years in Holland, eight years in New York City. I went to um, Stuyvesant High School in New York City, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and that's where I first got to touch a computer. Um, my next stint was at the uni- uh, in Hawaii. I was here for four years, three of which I spent attending the University of Hawaii, majoring in computer science and Dungeons and Dragons. Um, then I moved to Japan, 18 years in Japan. Uh, I started my first company and uh, wrote the first role-playing game in Japan in uh, 1983. Um, so I was a game designer, programmer. I did pretty much everything back then. Um, then uh, I, I switched my role from being a programmer, game designer, to being a publisher. And I used to travel the world looking for games. One of the games that I found on one of my trips was a game called Tetris at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And I uh, thought... I, I was attached to this game. I kept coming back and playing it. And uh, I've been after Tetris and the rights to Tetris ever since. And uh, so when the big opportunity came, uh, which is 1995, basically all the rights to Tetris were reverting back to the author of Tetris, Alexei Pajitnov. He had asked me to help him and be his partner. And I decided to go for it. And I have been his partner ever since still am today. And we formed what is called the Tetris Company. What is uh, this partner with, partnership with Lexi? How has that uh, changed your life, I guess, besides obviously what you just said with Tetris? I mean, how has it finally changed your life? Well, I, I went from uh, you know trying to design my own games to working on Tetris because I thought that was a bigger play. Um, and sure enough, you know, compared to, say, you know, another game, Tetris is sort of outperforms at 10x. Uh, now, I, I've, I've uh, contributed a lot to Tetris over the years in terms of game design, and that's sort of what I do today. Even today, I'm, I'm working on improving the design and doing new things with Tetris. Can you describe some of the first moments of you stumbling onto Tetris? Were you like, wow, this is the, the best thing in the world? Were you, what were your first thoughts about the game, and did it even occur to you that it would get you to where you are today? Um, no, the answer to that is no. I, I found it at the Consumer Electronics Show. I played it, um, and I thought, okay. I mean, it looked really rudimentary compared to all the other games that were at the trade show, even in 1987. And 
I went away and I came back and I played a little bit more and I went away and I came back a little bit more. And the <laughs> fifth time I, I, I realized I was hooked on this game. And, you know, no other game does that to you at the Consumer Electronics Show. You've got to sort of make up your mind uh, about whether a game is interesting by playing it for 10 seconds or 15 seconds. And that's just not enough time for most games to really get the gist of the game. But in Tetris, you could get it. Uh, and I did. And so I was hooked. And, you know, by the, at, at that time, I was the president of the company. name of my company in Japan was Bulletproof Software. And uh, I made all the decisions, ran the spreadsheets. And so I could negotiate at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, to try to get titles. And I started that path with Tetris. About what time did Blue Planet Software come into play to supersede your original company, Bulletproof Software? It's the end of 95. It, you know, I created the company to be the partner and the managing company for Tetris in 19. It's right around New Year's of 1995, 96. So that, that's when we created Blue Planet Software. And, you know, I'd, I'd always been BPS. So I liked the mnemonic of BPS and I had a really good logo, which I didn't use. Uh, and I thought setting up a company in the U.S., I'd call it BPS because everybody knew me as being somebody from BPS. But we try to make it a little bit, no, a little bit more new age. And Blue Planet Software, the concept is you start in Hawaii and then you get a global view. You kind of back off the planet and look at the planet from above Hawaii. It's pretty much a blue planet. So it's, uh, it's a world view starting in Hawaii. It's kind of funny, too, how your first – treks into this business world slash gaming world was uh you know was role playing and it's not uh it's not uncommon to actually look at your life and see it very much like a role playing game you you're you'd invented games you'd help obviously mold and shape tetris to what it is today create companies to support it and license it you'd gone to russia negotiated contracts even from what i understand dealt with the kgb at some point tell us a little bit about the journey of creating the companies to support Tetris and the licensing models. What were some of the earlier thoughts about truly making Tetris the, I guess, the culture-changing game that it is today? Well, uh, prior to the formation of the Tetris company, <clears throat> the Soviet Ministry of Software, Electronorg Technica, had licensed Tetris to a bunch of different companies, Sega, Nintendo, uh, Bulletproof Software, uh, Mirrorsoft, all these different companies, and without really having a guideline as to what the product should should do or how it should work, as a result, uh, they were all different and and not compatible. So, I mean, there would be fundamental differences. Like if you had a car where the brake is on the right and the gas pedal is on the left side. Obviously, if you rented that car, you, a lot of people would have accidents. Well, in the case of Tetris, it made the game very hard to play. Uh, for people switching platforms. And the biggest difference was in Japan. Uh, Nintendo was a huge hit with Game Boy, and I had their uh, same user interface with uh, the Nintendo 8-bit. But Sega had a huge hit with uh, Tetris as a coin-op, and they had a completely different way of handling the way the blocks fell and the way they locked down and the way they rotated. They were all different. And so my first job uh, when I formed the Tetris company was to... to uh, create a guideline and uh, we have a guideline today um, that basically everybody has to conform to so that at least the gas pedal is on the right the, the brakes on the left and you know all those things are standardized so people can go from platform to platform and play tetris so let's talk about some some of the roadblocks you might have uh, faced i guess in doing this journey 
uh, creating the Tetris company, licensing Tetris, and forming this basic game of mechanics. What are some of the biggest brick walls that you can think of that uh, that are, I guess, most notable to talk about? Well, the, the earliest, biggest brick wall was that Alexei, in 1993, asked me to help him. And uh, he said, you know what, um, the, the, the Russian, or the Soviet government was totally going to try to rip him off. Well, it's the leftover of the Soviet government. All these uh, ministries became private companies. How the hell that happens, nobody knows. But they became private companies, and then uh, they claim rights. Like, I mean, how did the guy who owned the oil company at the end get to own the oil company? Nobody knows. Well, it was that way with uh, the, the software. And uh, Alexei said they were going to claim that uh, he didn't have any rights. And sure enough, come 1995, uh, you know, Nintendo needed uh, to renew their rights because all the contracts ended in 1995. And the Russians came out and said, you know what, Alexei has no rights. He never did. Just, it was work for hire. Uh, it was the Soviet Union. People didn't have any copyright uh, rights, authorship rights. And so everything that Alexei said was going to happen was actually happening. And so I went to bat for Alexei. I said, you know, I, I remember being in a meeting with uh, Elorg's lawyers and Nintendo's lawyers, and that was just me. And I said, gentlemen, I'm probably the only one in this room not a lawyer, but I can see at some point there's going to be a jury, and they're going to have to decide whether it's the Ministry of Software of the defunct Soviet Union or the author of the game who actually owns the rights to Tetris. I'm betting on the author. So from there, you know, there was no – they were going to give us 20 percent and we were going to give them 20 percent. I mean, we're very far apart. Uh, a year later, we came together, in fact, in Moscow, and we ended up negotiating seriously – and uh, we, we came up with the Tetris company. The, the, the deal for me was that um, the, all of the copyright and trademark registrations in I don't know how many countries uh, were in the name of Elorg, Electronic Technica, which would mean that I'd have to go country by country and fight for the rights to get these trademarks and get the, the, the copyrights back. Um, and that was their deal with Nintendo, by the way. When they did a deal with Nintendo, they said Nintendo has to, in their name, register the copyright and trademark in all these countries, which they did. Um, so I was kind of a, sort of in a quarter, but we got a, we got a pretty decent deal. So the Tetris company at that time was a 50-50 company between Blue Planet Software and Electron, Electronarch Technica, Elorg. And Blue Planet Software became the exclusive agent of the Tetris company. So we did all the work, which, I mean, those guys in Moscow, they had no idea. So they couldn't do any of the work anyway. What was the concern at, the, at that point? Were they, did they just want the rest of the game because they cared about it so much? Or they just, was it just a financial um, you know, battle for them? You know, for them, the, the, these were like communists uh, all of a sudden without a communist country. And so their concept was people don't have these rights. They didn't believe that copyright or trademark belonged to, you know, people. They, it belonged to the people. And all of a sudden, okay, so how the hell does it go from the people to being them? That's, that's kind of <laughs> right. weird, you know. Okay, so they, there, was a, there was an ideolo- ideological difference. Uh, and they thought they could walk away with it with like the guy walking away with the, uh, the oil company. They could walk away with the whole Tetris. And I said, no, that's not the way it's going to go down. And 
we fought and negotiated and finally came up with an agreement. How long did this, this all take? This Was it a year or so, or was it just a couple months? Well, yeah, from the time that the, the previous, you know, sort of conversation with all the lawyers in the room to, uh, to when we actually formed the company is about, it's almost a year. I think I met in February at Nintendo in Redmond for that, pre, that prior meeting where we walked away and we couldn't agree to anything. Um, and then uh, I, end up, I ended up in Moscow in uh, the very beginning of 1996, like right around that New Year's cusp. And we were seriously negotiating because Nintendo was publishing without a license. Or they weren't going to, they weren't going to continue publishing because they didn't have a license. You know? And this was like bad for Tetris all around. And so what, at what point then did, uh, did Blue Planet Software actually get a hold of Tetris? And, and when that happened, what were the, some of the fundamental changes that actually catapulted into the next stages of having that, the gaming mechanics down and the licensings managed? At what point did that happened for Blue Planet Software? Yeah, so that happened right at the beginning of 1996. And what was the very first publisher, I guess, of, of the next version or this? Well, we rolled over Nintendo. We gave them sort of grandfathered in Nintendo with their... Uh, with their existing product. Uh, but who was the first licensee? Gosh, um, I can't even remember. How many have there been? Uh, probably somewhere between, somewhere around 50, 60 licensees. And they all create their own different versions, and part of the licensee, the license uh, agreement is that they can actually uh, inject characters or put their own little twist on Tetris, but basic mechanics have to stay the same? Yeah, so basically we give them a guideline and we, we maintain approval rights. So we approve a final product. So they send us, I mean, they can talk to us, but we don't approve documents or prototypes. It's actually got to be a working game before we approve it. Um, so basically what we say is follow the guideline, add whatever you want to add to it. That's, you know, that's wide open. If you want to add your characters to it, that's fine. Those are your characters. So you can add Mickey Mouse or, or, or Mario. That's all fine. We don't claim those characters. All we claim is any change you make to the game that, that improves the game becomes part of the IP. The IP that you hold or the IP that they hold? The IP that we hold. Uh, that's part of the basic Tetris IP that we license to all licensees. So basically, if Nintendo improves something about the, uh, about the Tetris games, not only do we get to use it, but all of our licensees get to use it. Otherwise, it gets so complicated saying, ah, oh, this is not invented here, and so on and so forth. We just don't want to have that happen. And ultimately, it's to the benefit of all licensees. If anything that anybody invents, everybody gets to use. And so how has the game of Tetris really changed over time? I mean, I, I can just sit back. I'm 31 years old, about to turn, turn 32. The first time I played it was on the very first Nintendo platform. I can remember that. I can't remember if I actually had a couple of Game Boys or not, but I know I played it on that platform. How has it changed over time, uh, and, and how has it impacted our culture? Yeah, so if you go back to the very original uh, Tetris, which Alexei created in the Electronica 60, which was a, a PDP-11 ripoff, uh, <laughs> Um, it only counted the tetraminos that fell into the screen. Each time one fell into the screen, you got points. And if you dropped it, like a hard drop, if you dropped it from the top of the screen, you'd get 19 points. If you dropped it from, the, from one line down, you get 18, 17, 16, and so on. So the higher up you dropped it from, you 
you got uh, uh, less points uh, or more points. The higher you get more points. And then there was a next queue, just a single next block. And that, that next block, uh, if you turn that on, um, if, you, if you turn it off, you get an extra five points per block. So it, uh, it behooved you to keep the next, uh, the next block turned off. And that's how the, the game was. There was no counting lines or bonuses for clearing more lines. That's one of the things that I invented in, uh, um, in my first product in, in Japan, which was for the 8-bit Nintendo. You know, I, I, I added single, double, triple Tetris, where you got bonus points for clearing multiple lines at the same time. And the reason I, I added that is because the, the lower levels, you know, all players had to play through the lower levels, the slower levels, I should say. And when you play through the slower level, that that's kind of gets boring. It, get, it doesn't get exciting until you get to the higher level. So I wanted to give players something to do at the lower level. And, that's, and I did that by creating this new thing where you actually have to create the pipe somewhere uh, to, make, to make a Tetris. And when you create the pipe to make a Tetris, your play field or the place where you can land your blocks actually goes from 10 wide to 9 wide, which gives you a little bit extra dilemma. And so it makes the game a little bit more ex- exciting by giving you this extra thing to think about of having to squeeze all your blocks. What exactly is a Tetris? Then? Is it just completing a line? No, a Tetris is clearing four lines at a time. Four lines at a time, okay. So I guess this, this is some of the evolution of the game, too. How many people have contributed? How have the licensees contributed to this game? Well, if you look at, uh, at Sega um, and Nintendo, um, if you look at the, the way the, the keyboard was laid out on the PC... Uh, your right hand is on the 10 key and your left hand is on the space bar and that's where you do your hard drop. And the rotate is actually, back then, is in the middle of left, right. So you got left, right, uh, you've got rotate. Those are three buttons on the right. On the left side, you've got hard drop. So those are four buttons. Um, what we did, what, what Nintendo uh, invented which is a great thing. You know, I, I actually got my guys to try it, but my testers rejected it. And that was when we went to the console was to put left, right on the, on the little, uh, what do you call it, the little cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted, they, see, the, or they had the, the rotate on the down and the drop on the, on, the, on the trigger on the right side. And that was sort of like just backwards from the way it was on the keyboard on on a PC. Uh, but what Nintendo did was they put the, they, they, they got rid of hard drop and they made it a soft drop. And then on the, the right thumb, you had left rotate and right rotate. So now we've got all of the movement buttons on the left hand and all the rotate on the other, uh, on the other hand, which I think that's a much better user interface. Yeah, I think so. It kind of equals out the playing field. You know what's on which side and which does what. Yeah, and you get a left rotate and a right to- right rotate. So when you're really in a pinch, you know that those two rotation. Instead of having to make three rotation to get a certain, uh, like the T block to be a certain direction, you you can just do one rotate the other direction. Right. If it's if you've only got co- clockwise rotation, then you'd have to rotate three times to get to a position instead of rotating the other direction one time. So that's one. This, uh, Sega they had a different way. In the Nintendo game, when the piece got to the bottom, as soon as it touched blocks in the, what we call it, the matrix, in the play field, which we call the matrix, as soon as 
it touches a block in the matrix, it locks down. So it's like lockdown is instant. But in the Sega, you could drop it, land it. Once it's landed, you could still rotate it and move it. So this meant, this meant that you could uh, hard drop a piece and then you could like drop it and rotate it and drop it. And you could, In fact, the way the game was played on the Sega machine is most of the thinking time that you have about what to do with the piece is after you drop it. And in the Nintendo game, it's all happening while the piece is falling. So those are fundamental differences. And we, we incorporate both of those ideas into the guideline. So basically, you can think while it's falling, but you still have time once it's landed, uh, like 500, milli, you know, 500 milliseconds before it actually locks down. That sort of um, gives you a chance to rotate and do something once it's landed. So it's not as brutal. Before we move on to, um, I guess, ultimately talking about the bigger question here, which might be how did you actually pay for all this uh, travel time, deliberation with lawyers and getting the licensing and uh, ultimately creating the Tetris company and uh, Blue Planet Software, um, let's, let's talk briefly about more or less where it's going. I know that you guys have always been this forward-thinking uh, duo between you and Alexi and, and what Tetris is. Like we see more and more now, the games are going mobile. I mean, mobile games are like the number one seller on the Apple uh, App Store and all that good stuff. Where do you see the future of Tetris going? Is it just going to keep this simple um, but yet complex game mechanics going on? But where do you see it going through the mobile platforms, and how is it impacting the, I guess, Tetris as it is right now? Okay, so first I'd like to mention that uh, mobile platform has been Tetris's greatest hit so far. Uh, we probably did around forty million on Game Boy, but uh, la- about a almost a year ago, we we passed a hundred million downloads, paid downloads on mobile phones. So that's a huge number. That's the biggest number of any game in in you know on mobile. And so yes, Tetris will continue to be the best mobile game. It's just very simple. the The screen on the mobile device, by definition, is small, and Tetris, the, the, the pieces of Tetris are very distinct and easy to see on the small screen. Um, and the, game is, the gameplay doesn't lose when you go to the small uh, device. So Tetris is and still continues to be after, gosh, now 20 years, uh, the best mobile game out there. Uh, but the future of Tetris, I think, is, uh, is social. Um, we're working on a new version of Tetris where you play Tetris uh, with your friends and uh, and you you get to meet new people through Tetris, and so by playing, you know, rather than playing solitaire, and the word solitaire, if you listen to that word, solitaire is like the worst thing you could do to somebody. You could send them to solitary confinement, which means that they're by themselves; they don't get to talk to anybody. And video games, by and large, traditionally have been people going off into their own little world and playing a video game by themselves. But being by themselves is a little bit of a torture in a way because people need companionship. And so going forward, Tetris and I think all video games will become social so that you're in there and you're never alone. You're with your friends and they're they're competing uh, against you or you're on the same team uh, competing against other people. So <clears throat> I think that that is the future of gaming, and it's certainly the, the, the future of, uh, uh, of Tetris. 
Is it something that uh, Blue Planet Software and the Tetris company will, will do itself, or will it license this out and you kind of play a, a part in that? So we have licensed Tetris out to um, the, um, how can I say, the online industry. We've got three licensees uh, as we speak uh, for different territories for online. Um, but I don't think any of them have really successfully made the transition from Tetris being a solo game to being a social game. And so every once in a while, when I think that things aren't going uh, according to plan, so to speak, I roll up my sleeves and I, I start building a new product. So that's what we're doing right now. We're in the, in the process of creating a, a new version of Tetris, which is social. Was Tetris Attack part of that social? I remember in my research looking up uh, some of the things on this conversation here that Tetris Attack was came out about two years ago in 2009. Um, was that the social version of it or the version that you f- first started that? Tetris Attack or Tetris Battle? The versions that have come out so far, and they started in Korea because Korea is sort of like ahead of the curve. They were the first ones uh, to do Tetris on a large scale. But if you look at Tetris the way it's done in Korea... <clears throat> It's a very adversarial way of playing the game. You know, you and five other people get into a room and you form teams, either three on three, two on two on two, or everyone for himself, and you duke it out. And so um, that may be an interesting way of playing in Korea, but it's not the way people in general play uh, social games. So, for example... You're not duking it out with anybody in Farmville or any of those social games on Facebook. You're basically showing off your, uh, your accomplishments and you're helping your friends get ahead. And the more friends you have helping you, the better off you are. And that's the direction that we have to go in and that's the direction, the direction we are going in. I guess uh, around the, the mobile gaming space, which is your favorite to play Tetris on? On the, on the mobile... Um, I guess if you, my my favorite is still the Game Boy. You know, it's got the it's got the best controls for for that device, uh, for the device size. You know, if you if you go to uh, mobile phones themselves, the majority of them, for example, the uh, the uh, what they call feature phones, uh, the pre smartphone era, the feature phones, you're playing on the on the keys, the the number keys on your uh, mobile phone, and they weren't designed to do that. They were designed to make phone calls. Right. And so they're not game machine keys. And now that we've gone to smartphones um, where you have the, uh, you know, you, you touch and slide, um, it's interesting. It's interesting, but still, when you, when you look at the 100% dedicated game machine like the Game Boy, they could have made that a slide screen, but they didn't. They still have the buttons in there. Uh, as part of the form factor. So being able to play with the, the original buttons, well, maybe call me old school, whatever, but that, that's still easier for me to play with the, uh, with the little cross and then the left and right rotate. Yeah, earlier when you mentioned the basic mechanics of Tetris, I was thinking about, uh, 
I actually just bought the the game on iPhone recently, and and the hard drop is super easy. I like, I kind of like how also that you can see the image of the piece down at the bottom where it will land, but you also see it falling at the same time. But yeah. you can also grab that that block and do that hard drop like you'd mentioned before to get those extra yeah. points from top up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the platforms like that, the touch screen and this, you know, direct interface. Are you saying that uh, you favor the old school Game Boy versus this, or is it just because it's a preference of you? Well, I'm I'm a, I'm getting to be an old man. You know? I just turned, <laughs> I became a grandfather. So congratulations! It's, it's, it's thank you. It's it's hard for me to uh, to get my game skill up to the point on the new screen, whereas my my kids and everybody else in the world, the younger generation, they're much more adept at uh, uh, manipulating that kind of a screen than I am. I'm just not. I didn't grow up with it. That's what it, I mean. It's like inventing. Uh, a new way of playing tennis. Uh, it's hard for the older folks to catch up. So at what point does uh, Blue Lava Wireless play in this uh, grand scheme? We've talked about traveling the world and battling lawyers for licenses and defining the gaming mechanics and, you know, the whole entire spectrum of what Tetris is today. How has, what role does Blue Lava Wireless play in this, in this big story? Yeah, so Blue Lava Wireless, um, in... At the end of, uh, like, around 1999, I think, um, a friend of mine in Japan who started, was starting a new publishing company um, came to me and he said, my publishing company is going to be based on, two, uh, on, on one product. It's going to be Tetris. Uh, the other product that I think could make it is Pokemon, but Nintendo is never going to license Pokemon to me. So I need Tetris from you. And I'm willing to bet a third of the money that I raise to start this company to get the rights to Tetris. So basically he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And <clears throat> by the way, everything he said came true. True that, that, uh, that company went on to become the number one game comp- mobile phone game company. Uh, Tetris was their number one product. It was probably half of their sales. And <clears throat> with that ammunition in hand, I started looking around the U.S. for a licensee. Uh, okay, so who's going to be my mobile phone licensee? And... <laughs> The biggest offer we got was $25,000. That was a joke compared to what, what I got out of Japan. And so what I realized at that moment is that nobody in the U.S. quite understood what was going to happen with mobile games, how big that was going to be. So I decided to do it myself. So, again, I started another company called Blue Lava Wireless. We started, I think, in 2002 here in Hawaii. Um, and basically... You know, I, I moved to Hawaii because I, I had some uh, line on financing. Uh, but you know what? Six months into it, we were so close to profitability that we never needed the financing. So we never, how can I say, took any outside money. It was just my wife and I. Um, and we built a company and it was profitable. And when we sold it, we were, we were still growing. And I think that uh, that sell that you just mentioned happened around three and a half years later. For a pretty yeah. pretty high number too. You want to mention that number? Yeah. Um, the uh, you know the, what what you read in the newspaper is 137 million dollars, and the 137 million dollars came from Jamdat. Four million of that was stock uh, at 16 dollars a share. But uh, a year later, um, Electronic Arts bought Jamdat and cashed in all my stock that I was holding. So the forty the forty uh, four thousand. I'm sorry, four million shares. Uh, was was valued at twenty seven dollars, and so I 
I think I made around 180 million dollars all all told. You know, of course, there's other people with hands in the pockets and so on and so forth. So, but it was still a good deal. What was the early talks about uh, with EA? How did they come to you? Were they? I, I can't. I don't know. I, I haven't been the. Uh, I guess. I haven't been the kind of person that's been so in depth in the games to understand EA's history, but I'd imagine that around 2005 they were pretty popular. I mean, I played NHL 98 and all the other fun games like Madden and stuff, but they were pretty big player. What did they come at you with? And was it? Uh, is there any fun stories about EA and that uh, that approach? Well, uh, actually, it wasn't me that they came at. It was Jamdat. So basically, you know, I w- I'm not day to day at Jamdat. So. I, you know, I didn't have the company at that point. So, but you know, Electronic Arts historically, um, just to give you some background, I published two of Nintendo uh, of Electronic Arts' first games in Japan. That would be Mule and Archon in nineteen gosh eighty six, eighty seven, eighty six probably. Uh, so I've been close to EA since their beginning. They started after me, and uh, they tried to buy me twice in Japan so that I could become their Japanese, the Japan EA. And twice I said no, and both times I should have said yes. I was an idiot back then. I didn't know anything about selling companies. I was still trying to hang on and trying, trying to do everything myself. It's like having your first baby. You, you watch it too carefully. When you look back on that time, why do you say you should have said yes? Because I would have had money. <laughs> Electronic Arts after that went public and... Uh, you know, my whatever stock I got out of it would have been huge. Just like Richard Garriott made made his money by selling to uh, by selling to uh, Electronic Arts Origin, and uh, you know that would that could have been me, so to speak. So, what made you say no? What? Oh, yeah. Well, the first time I said no was because uh, the U.S. had just gone through the Atari crash, and I re- I was looking at the future was going to be Nintendo, and. Uh, <clears throat> Electron- I talked to Electronic Arts about it. I said, no, no, no. Uh, there's no future in cartridges because of what happened in the U.S. I'm going to understand why they would say that. But for me, my future of Bulletproof Software in Japan was heavily cartridge-based. And so that was the, the reason I said, uh, I said no the first time. You know, I was negotiating with Trip Hawkins back then. And uh, I talked to him about this later and I said, you know, that's probably not true. I, you, you could have convinced me. Uh, to do cartridge and so on and so on and so forth. But uh, anyway, I said, no, I got cold feet. What about the second time? The second time, um, I forget. I just didn't want to, I, you know, I'd never worked for anybody. <laughs> and I, I could see that if they bought me, you know, there would be a, you got to run the company for X number of years and report to us and so on and so forth. And I, I'd never done that. I'd never reported to anybody, uh, no, no board of directors or no manager. In some, so I was kind of afraid of, of uh, ending up having to run a company that somebody else was telling me what to do. That was, a, that was the second time. Again, foolish, but that's my history. I think the not so much the best part of this, but I think from a um, planetary culture-changing perspective on your story, I think one of the, the coolest things I like about this is really what's come out of this from um, that uh, that you started the Blue Planet Foundation back there in Hawaii, where you're at now. Um, we talked about the funding and the sell to uh, Jamdat, which was ultimately taken over by EA, and you talked about how much money you made there. Has all that money been fueled into what you're doing at Blue Planet, and can you give kind of a quick overview of, of what you're doing there at Blue Planet Foundation? 
Yeah. So um, just a quick overview. A, m- a month after I sold my uh, Blue Lava Wireless and made all that money, I had a heart attack. Oof. And <laughs> I'm on the way to the uh, – I hadn't spent a nickel. And I'm lying in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. I said, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I haven't, I haven't really done what I really need to do with the money yet. And uh, so I'm looking at the, the ceiling and I'm saying to myself, I'm going to su- survive this <clears throat> no matter what. If I have to hold my breath for 15 minutes, I will because I have stuff to do. And then I got think- to thinking about that afterwards. Of course, I survived it. Uh, I have two stents and it's, it's great. I'm back to normal. Um, I, I got a chance to spend a couple of weeks thinking about what I want to do before I die. And I found my four missions in life. And my first mission is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. And to that end, I started the Blue Planet Foundation, which is working to end the use of carbon-based fuel, starting in Hawaii, because guess what? Hawaii has all the alternative energy that it could possibly want. It has wind, it has solar, it has geothermal, it has ocean thermal energy conversion, it has... God knows every kind of uh, alternative energy, and we have the highest price of of uh, fossil fuel of anywhere in the world because we have to ship it the farthest. It it gets uh, barged here, and we we pay the highest electricity, the highest gasoline uh, prices of anywhere in the country, not in the world, but in the country. So Hawaii is ripe to make the the changeover from fossil fuel to alternative energy. And we might as well go all the way and go and say uh, from fossil fuel to non-carbon based alternative energy. And so the Blue Planet Foundation is I'm, I want to give the the I guess the one liner, I suppose it's a local nonprofit organization. And you said it best committed to ending the use of fossil fuels on Earth and starting in Hawaii because of all these resources already there that uh, that they should be should be using. Why do you think it's, I mean, some big reasons, obviously, with um, politics and the cost of fuel, but bigger than that, why do you feel that uh, this is now your sole mission or the, the biggest mission beyond Tetris for you? It's, 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 my, it's my first mission. Uh, and the reason is, is because in my lifetime, we can do this thing. And, and it's, it's totally doable, just like the Industrial Revolution. You know, if we look back on it, pre-industrial revolution and post-industrial revolution, how big of a change that made to the world. And, you know, now we, we mention the guy who invented steam and so on and so forth as, as being heroes in that, in that time period. But it didn't take that long, and it spread through the world. And that's kind of what I'm looking to do with uh, alternative energy. And the reasons for it is, uh, one is we have no idea what we're doing to the climate. I mean, you could, you could be on one side of the political fence. By the way, this political fence only exists in this country. If you look at the rest of the countries on the planet, they're looking at the U.S. and say, how can this be in a, a political issue? It's a, it's, a sci- it's a scientific issue. Just go out there, measure the temperature of the ocean, and find out that it's getting warmer. And that's got to be bad for, for the way things are. Things are going to change in ways that we don't even know yet. But that's what's just one side of it. The second part of it, carbon dioxide goes into the ocean and it causes acidification of the ocean. And what it's doing is it's taking, it's making it harder and harder for uh, marine animals that use carbon, like coral, like shellfish, to survive. And so effectively, we could be killing all of the coral by the end of this century by continuing on the path that we're on. That's nuts. 
that's a third of our food supply that's that's sort of coral based uh it's just going to cause so much trouble that we we haven't even figured out yet it's not just about uh, about pretty fish and all that it's about a whole ecosystem that we're ready here to wipe out um but then but look at fossil fuel look at oil um Iraq, Afghanistan, this whole, all these wars and the trillions of dollars that we're spending on these wars, uh, killing people and having them kill us, is all to maintain our oil supply. Uh, if we didn't need oil, those wars would not have happened. So why can't we just get over it and move on to the next phase of, of uh, mankind? Well, we don't do that. We don't have to. You mentioned four points, and uh, we got uh, we got the one. What are the other three? Uh, my second uh, second mission is to end war, uh, and I think they go hand in hand. If you relieve some of this tension in the world, then war becomes unnecessary. The third one is to make a backup of uh, life on Earth. Uh, <clears throat> we got hit sixty five million years ago by a big rock from space that wiped out the dinosaurs. A big rock from space could wipe us out next very easily. So we need to we need to make a backup, and I think Mars is the easiest place and the nearest place where we can actually make a backup. So we need to, uh, an effective space program. We need to go to Mars. We need to terraform Mars. We may we need to make Mars like an it, it turn it into another Earth. It's just a matter of time. I live on the Big Island. You watch the coastal uh, uh, lava lava rock. They've changed that into a tropical paradise. They just grind up the rock, make golf courses out of it. So. We can do it here. We can do it there. It's just a matter of time and, and engineering. And the, uh, the fourth one, I had no idea where, why I have this mission, uh, but it was there, and I followed my heart, and it's to figure out how the universe ends. You know, one way of looking at it is the universe ends next week. Maybe I don't have to work so hard on my first three missions. Um, but I think that if we find out the true nature of the universe, that will be another fundamental change. Maybe it will give us, you know, boundless free energy or or some kind of a something new i mean uh, when we first discovered uh e equals mc squared that gave us nuclear energy i mean that changed the world completely and that's sort of figuring out the universe uh, how it ends uh or how it you know what's the true nature of the universe um that sort of goes hand in hand with that and so is it by any ironic nature that you created a game called blue mars no Absolutely not. <laughs> that's right. That's right in uh, mission number three. Uh, so we're creating a, a, a platform so that people can go and, and build things on Mars and sort of get used to the idea of, yeah, we can go there and do whatever we want. And that's sort of uh, what I want people today to understand. And that's, I'm sure, what people in the future will be doing. And how, how, uh, how old is Blue Planet Foundation? Blue Planet Foundation is uh, probably four years old now. What are some of the bigger accomplishments that you've achieved, I guess, so far on not just your four-point list, but in general in the, in the foundation's list? In the foundation, yeah. So um, we, we changed like 100,000 light bulbs from, uh, from incandescent to compact fluorescent. We pretty much changed all the light bulbs on the island of Molokai, and we're still changing them. Um, that has a direct impact. Each light bulb that you change saves a tremendous amount of electricity, which in Hawaii translates to m- less burning of fossil fuel. Um, we have passed laws 
uh, we passed a law saying that every new house that gets built in Hawaii has to have a solar hot water heater. 40% of all residential electricity for houses that don't have solar uh, hot water heaters goes to heating water. So that if you have a solar hot water heater, that's 40% less, a 40% less electricity that you need in your house. Um, we passed a number of, uh, of electric car legislation so that it makes it more attractive uh, for someone to own a, and operate an electric car in Hawaii. Um, we, have, we passed a barrel tax, the first barrel tax in the, in the nation. Basically, for every barrel that's in, of oil that's imported into Hawaii, uh, it gets taxed a, a dollar, and that dollar goes to alternative energy projects. Um, we work with the PUC. We intervene. So we've been working uh, between the PUC and the electric company on a host of different things. Um, basically, if there's anything going on in Hawaii that has to do with alternative energy, we're in, in the middle of that conversation. I love how this is all fueled by Tetris, really. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's where your story started. You well, actually, before we got on the call, you'd mentioned that you actually went to Japan chasing a woman. So I guess we should really thank love really ultimately right <laughs> you chase love in tetris i chase love yeah so that woman is my wife and we have four children now and she also helped you do all these fun things together so you're you're really a team absolutely absolutely she's been there all the way you know she let me basically work on my first game for nine months without having a job and that ultimately led to my first company so she put up with me while, while having three kids and i was basically living with my in-laws uh, while I made uh, my first computer game. So, yeah, it's, it wouldn't have happened without her. So we can thank love. There you go. <laughs> I, lo- I love that. And, and obviously, uh, Alexi and Tetris and, and everything that you guys had done there in, the, in that, uh, that journey. But last question, I know we've been on the call for a bit. We're, we're at around 45 minutes. I asked you for a half hour, but it's been um, an honor to speak with you. But the next question I have really is one I love to ask. What is... Uh, on your radar in terms of of uh, super secretness? Like, is there anything going on in the next horizon of Blue Planet Foundation, um, Tetris, the Tetris, Tetris company, anything whatsoever that's like super secret you haven't told anybody <laughs> that you can announce here on the show today? Uh, gosh, you should have asked me that before. I could have prepared for something. Um, I have up my sleeve in Blue Mars... A, a new way of making role-playing games. I call it the adventure engine. Um, let's put it this way. It will enable um, ordinary people like people who write stories or who want to be uh, role-playing game level designers or so on to make their own, to easily make their own role-playing game inside of Blue Mars. And so that will open up um, the world of, of game design or interactive fiction design to a lot of people who are sort of being corralled into groups like uh, World of Warcraft, you know, big teams. So they'll be able to do it on their own, pretty much like the way people make stuff for the App Store. So App Store makes role-playing games. That's my, it's called the Adventure Engine. And ultimately Blue Mars is uh, is helping you hit point number three, which is to replicate life here on Earth and move it to Mars, or at least give us a backup. Yeah, 
we're in the software business. You make backups. Hello. <laughs> it should be obvious. Yeah. I mean, I love how it this idea though is that I think this Blue Mars idea and, and the gaming and this obviously that super secret that you just mentioned just now is uh, is huge because what you're really doing is you're is you're opening people's on a large scale people's minds to being able to provide life or create life or uh, enable life on Mars. I think that's, and I think you'd mentioned Tetris's next level is social gaming. And obviously you're taking the idea of taking us to Mars to a social spectrum with, with, uh, with blue Mars. And you're even opening up bigger with, um, with this, uh, what was it called again? The, what's the new, the engine? Oh, the adventure engine. The adve- adventure engine. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, Hank, it was more than an honor to speak with you. I mean, I'm sitting here just thinking, I just had a 45-minute conversation with someone who changed the world in a massive way and will continue to change the world in a massive way. And it's been an honor to have you on the show today. And I thank you so much. Before we go, is there any way you can uh, mention a few links or Twitter, Facebook, something like that, so people can get involved or learn more about Blue Planet Foundation and what you're doing with Tetris um, and how you're changing the world? Is there anything you want to mention Yes, please go to Blue Planet Foundation, that's one word, dot org, O-R-G, and find out what we're doing. Uh, we're doing it in Hawaii because we're in Hawaii, and we believe that we need to clean our own room before we ask other people to clean up their rooms. But we'll be coming to your part of the world and ask you to help clean your part of the world as well. Okay. Again, Hank, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be here. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you, Adam. Thank you. 